of your life, motivation, keep it moving, uh, all about improving, this it is a movement, conquer your life, uh, ain't no going backwards, time to overcome your challenges with Tristan Mathers, aiming to see the success, time to start living your best, positive changes, they creating the ripple effect, mind, body, spirit, all about resilience, welcome to the podcast, hey, let's get it, get it. What's up everybody, I'm Tristan Mathers and welcome to Conquer Your Life. Join me as I interview successful entrepreneurs from around the world sharing their invaluable insights with you. Together we'll ignite the fire within and unlock your limitless potential. Let's get it! I'm very, very excited for this podcast to get to know you, to unpack your story because it is one of the most amazing stories I've ever heard. I I say amazing, obviously. What happened in your past isn't the best, but it shaped you into who you are today and what you stand for. And uh, just want to unpack that a little bit. What do you typically tell people? Like a little quick rundown on who Misty Gilbert is. Well, I mean, for those who don't know me or don't know any part of my story, haven't listened to my TED Talk, The Art of Authenticity, How to Show the Real You. um, I kind of just summarized my life in a saying that I was born and raised into a cult. I left it at age 37. Um, I was raised in a home life that was abusive, manipulative, controlling, um, physically, mentally, spiritually. And I've been out of that cult and environment for nine years now. Mm, Completely out of it for nine years? Mm -hmm. I left um, March 2013, began my transformational journey somewhat that that later that year, but really beginning in 2014 when I worked with a coach in Salt Lake City, Utah. It was a mm. program called Live Big with Gerald Rogers. And it's kind of like a Tony Robbins, all immersive three-day experience. Mm. And I did it twice, January 2014 and then March 2014. And that really was the catalyst to my transformation. Um, during that period of time always, but particularly then I was sharing very vulnerably about my life and my journey and the things I was processing. And so by doing that, that's actually how I got into doing transformational coaching because three to four years into that process, people started wanting to hire me to help them after having shared my journey and answering their questions, it kind of turned into a business. So my second business was born through that. And then obviously three years after starting that business, I did my first uh, TED Talk. Um, Mm. So January 2019 is when I did my TED Talk. So, okay, yeah. So, uh, you know, a lot of people ask, what is a cult? And I just say it it, for me was a religious organization that um, consumed my life and told me how to live, how to be, how to dress, how to act, how to think how to have a relationship with God. Um, And we were a flavor of every religion out there. So people try to grasp things. I kind of describe it as if we were Jehovah Witnesses because we didn't celebrate Christmas and we did pass out tracts and things to try to convert people to God and make sure they knew about salvation. We were like the Pentecostal in the sense that we wore long denim skirts, wore our hair up in a bun, um, very distinguished look. We were like the Mennonite Amish and Mormon where they have a strong community and they help each other. Um, whether that is through building a house or, a, you know, 
food meal chain when somebody's had a baby or um, pitching in financially if they had a hardship, you know, car broken down or something. Um, everybody always was helping each other. We were very strong, connected group. But if you didn't follow the rules or things, then obviously you faced punishment, you faced annihilation, exclusion, abandonment, rejection. Um, we were like the Baptists where we didn't drink, we didn't smoke, we didn't dance, we didn't have TVs. So we pulled, you know, a bit from each of the religions and we didn't have a name. We were just simply people who met together in a locality. Now we would refer to each other as the Christians we know. That's like how we knew that we knew those people. Um, And then locationally, we would say we were from the assembly of whatever town you lived in. So the assembly of Dallas, assembly of Fort Worth, assembly of Los Angeles, the assembly, whatever. So like when we went to these big Christian camp retreats that we would do usually a couple times a year, when you would meet somebody, if you weren't really sure who they were, where they lived, you would ask them, what assembly do you attend? And then you would know where they were located. But we knew people all over the world, particularly uh, the United States, Mexico, Canada, Switzerland, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, um and their belief was that we all were a part of God's church. He's building one church, and that we didn't take a name to separate ourselves. So that's how we had no name. But behind the scenes, we had ways of referring to each other. But a, a lot of the families were big families. My mom was born into a family of of six kids, and so a lot of these families had long, you know, history of um generations because of the fact they had so many kids Mm. so it was a very very tight-knit group would you say from the outside looking in it wasn't we wouldn't be perceived as bad per se but from the inside looking out that's when you would really know yeah i would say you know from the outside looking in like if you came and we didn't call it church we called it meeting so if you came to a sunday service at 10 30 you would think these are a great group of people. Like they're not, they were not mean people just initially meeting people until you got into it. And, you know, they would have been very accepting with you, very loving of you, Tristan, until your second or third meeting, then they would be having conversations with you. Like, what is your belief about water baptism? What is your belief about Christmas? Are you and your girlfriend sleeping together because you're not married? And, you know, they get all in your business. And those were the ways that they, enforced their beliefs and then whether you complied or didn't comply was then how they treated you. Mm. So it was almost like, I like to look at, you know, the Christian belief and, and uh, the faith. There's two different types. There's the, there's the types that sounds like this, where there's, you have to follow the rules to the T or you're not doing God's work. You're not doing it the right way. You have to literally be perfect in every area of your life or the other people that literally follow and understand they're going to fuck up and they're going to repent. They're going to let God lead them in the right ways and not have like that judgment or like, if you mess up, screw you, we're staying away from you type of vibe. Yeah, I would say, I mean, they did a mix of both. It was kind of a bit of a, you know, a mind fuck, if you will, right? Like on the <laughs> one hand, it's, we we know you're a sinner. We know you're saved by grace. We know your um, righteousness is filthy rags. Like we can say all this, but then on the other hand, we have this line we want you to walk, right? Sexual sins were the utmost 
horrible, worst thing you could have ever done. And they took it to the point that if you were having sex outside of marriage, you had to stand up in the congregation and give a public confession. Like they had a lot of things. So these things were to deter you from actually getting into that situation in the first place. Um, but yeah, then if you didn't, then they would have meetings with you and put pressure on you to change and to be different and you're ungodly and you're divisive. And um, they would go so far as do church punishment and it was called mark to avoid. So as the Bible talks about marking, they literally used that term and they would say, um, today we're letting the congregation know this didn't happen, but I'm just using it as an example. Misty Gilbert is being marked to be avoided. That means you can't talk to her. You can't eat lunch with her. You can't eat dinner with her. You can't go skating with her at the roller rink. You can't sit out and have a picnic with her. You act like you don't know her. Like that's the kind of thing they would do to segregate you from the congregation as somebody who shouldn't you shouldn't be around that you were a bad influence you worldly um, um defiant so yeah on the one hand they would say you're saved by grace and you just got to ask for forgiveness and we all make mistakes and fuck things up and we get back on track but the opposite side of how that was carried out was you know a lot of rules and mm. performance for value and for connection. It wasn't true love. You know, we like to get into this saying about love being conditional, unconditional. Love can't have conditions or it's not love. So there's really not even something called unconditional love because then that's conditional love, which conditional love isn't love. So unfortunately though, that's, that's the environment I was raised in. Um, And my parents had their own rules outside of the church um, in way that they looked at, um, what was right, what was wrong, what was godly, what was ungodly. That that was very strong part of my upbringing. Mm. Yeah, I remember us uh, touching on it a little bit in Whitefish, Montana. You shared a little bit about your story and what mm-hmm. you've been through. Um, so with what you were just talking about when it comes to, you know, standing up in front of the church or the church, like, in a way, just neglecting you, like putting you in the corner, stay away from her, she got covid type of type of stuff um Mm -hmm. did they do that to you did you have Um, to go through that I I went through that particularly because I was raped at age 17 my parents didn't believe I was raped and their philosophy was at any point in time that a man could quote-unquote get in your hands you were doing something wrong something inappropriate um I was raped um July 1994 um and my 18th birthday was later that year in November and my parents went and let me have my birthday because that was one of the many things that they had done as a form of punishment. They gave me a seven year sentence, but all this to say it was March the following year when my parents then decided it was time for me to stand up in the congregation and give this public confession about my situation. And of course, not that I was raped. It was put on as if I had been involved on my end fornication on his end adultery because he was married 28 years older than me with two twin boys my age but yeah they made me stand up in front of the congregation and and say that I was sorry for my conduct and that I repented and blah 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 and that's a typical form of humiliation um that they would do with everybody it it didn't matter age um or or gender surprisingly Mm -hmm. as much as women were not (laughs) supposed to have a forefront um, place in the church or be vocal much, but yeah, it, it, that's, that was something I, I went through. When you tell me that, 
it literally makes me want to throw up. I mean, it, it messes with me so much because like, it, it's hard to believe that things like that happen, you know, and it's actually real that it, it's, it's hidden behind the scenes, but then somebody like you actually went through that. I couldn't imagine what that was like. Cause I assume it, whatever happened, happened to you, which was already traumatic in and of itself. And you thought the right thing to do is to share what happened, be honest. And they took that and like fucking stomped you into the ground and just ruined. Yeah. So you seven years, right? After that, you, Seven years is the sentence they gave me. I only lived um, at home three and a half more years before moving out on my own and bucking their authority and um, the sentence that they gave me. Um, but yeah, they there's seven years in the Bible several times, you know, with whether it's plague or punishment, the number of completion. And so they felt I needed to reap for my actions of inappropriate sexual conduct and prove that I was worthy and repentant and all this stuff. And then through that seven years, they would lift punishment as I continued to, um, you know, embark on changing my ways, if you will. Um, it, it started out as very intense punishment, very, some things very frivolous, but a lot of things also not. But I mean, taking my driver's license away, not letting me drive, canceling my auto insurance, not letting me drink purified water. So my mom had sparklets delivered to the house of purified water. I couldn't drink that. I had to drink tap water because their mindset was if I was going to um, violate my own body and potentially get risk of diseases or pregnancy or anything like that, well, then I didn't deserve any, any good stuff into my body. Um, they took away all my clothes, but five outfits. Um, they wanted my life to be very difficult. Couldn't even get through a full week of clothing and that I would have to wash stuff more often and um, no flowery prints. Everything was solid um, colors, blah colors, no bright, vibrant. Um, at the time, obviously, <clears throat> it I didn't have earrings. My hair was very long down to my waist, almost to my butt. Um, and so any hair jewelry, you know, bows or clips or anything that were really nice, all those were taken away. High heels were taken away from me. Um, all my hobbies were taken away from me except reading. I could read books. Um, I could do nothing with my siblings. Um, they were paranoid. I had AIDS. They made me go through AIDS testing every, um, six months for three and a half years that I was there. I would have continued. It was, that was one of the sentences for the full seven years, AIDS testing every six months, which we did at the County Health Department, which was free. But of course, they don't take your name and number because it's through the government program and or your age or anything. You just you get a number and that's how you to get your test and take it. And they do a lengthy questionnaire with you. You know, when's the last time you were involved with somebody? Was it protected, unprotected sex? Things like this. And, you know, each time I go in, no, I didn't have sex again. No, no. Well, then you don't need a test again. You don't understand. My mom says I do. But you don't. I'm like, I live with my parents. My mom says I do. I have to get a test. And like, so I went from being harassed by them too, besides my parents. Um, so yeah, my parents were so concerned about me having AIDS. They wouldn't even let my bath towel hang next to my siblings in the bathroom. I had to be contaminated, separated. Um, I couldn't eat with the family. They extended the table to the full length of leaves possible. And I was at the other end by myself. They first, I ate last. Um, I loves when I cooked in the kitchen because they didn't want a risk of getting AIDS. Um, 
I'm allergic to latex, so that's all thing where I got flash all the way up and down my arms. Mm. And initially, my mom bought me cortisone cream to clean it up, and then she's no, you brought this on yourself. This is your problem. You're just gonna have to suffer. Um, so, I mean, I could go on and on and on, interested as far as the number of things that they did. Yeah. Removed me from my sister's bedroom. They built a small um, bedroom in the dining room that became my bedroom, where they put a partition, partition up, a wall up, just like you would building a house. Just no insulation or or electrical or anything. Just a plain wall that they segregated. It was big enough for a twin bed um, and a small bookcase, a lamp, my Bible, one picture frame. Um, but they took away anything that was a luxury. So I had a very one very thin blanket and a pillow, like basically as if I was in prison. That was what they were trying to recreate. Segregated from the family, couldn't hang out with my siblings, couldn't talk to my siblings, worked the minute I got up to the minute I went to bed. No fun, no play, no relaxation. I was a slave. Um, so yeah, that was supposed to be seven years. Um, obviously there's points along the way things started changing. They let me have my 18th birthday, uh, the following year, March 20, uh, March, 1995. Um, but then, you know, other little things, they made me start working and, and pay a hundred bucks a month for my room and board in that mm. little, <laughs> little bedroom in the kitchen. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just, that, that I, you know, I wrestled four days after I was raped, whether I should tell my parents or not, because I knew, even though I didn't know what would happen, I knew stuff like this would happen, right? It wasn't a complete shock. This is how they, this is how they dealt with punishment in mm-hmm. various ways, rebellion, um, lies, dishonesty, whatever through your childhood, whatever was done to take away things, take away sugar, take away juice, no fruit, like, those were things that were typical ways to punish. And mom would put it on the calendar for the whole week. Misty can't have any sugar. Misty can't have any cookies. Um, and then, you you know, if you were more defiant along the way, disorderly of any kind of con, well, now it's two weeks. Well, now it's three weeks. Well, now it's four weeks. Right. And I didn't end up with a lot of that. My brother did. My brother was a chronic liar. So mm. he would be a year out. No sugar. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> it was just like, oh. So it's almost like, it was like prison, but worse. Yeah, it was. It was prison. A prison from your own family. Um, prison from how you were allowed to do things when you could go outside when you couldn't. Like, no, literally, it was a prison. We knew the rules. We knew um, how we were supposed to live and what we could and couldn't do, and um, were massively controlled. Mm. So you escaped from prison mm-hmm. three and a half years after your sentence. <laughs> your family uh how did that go how old were you i was 20 so you were 20 you escaped you left yeah so i left california and i moved to texas um my sister my sister moved three months prior to me so she left on her 18th birthday she was strategic in her plan she'd been planning for a year unbeknownst to me and my brother we got wind of it two weeks before she actually made made it all happen she would go to the payphone and use a prepaid phone card to call ministers in the church and explain what was going on. And she worked out a plan to try to leave with my parents' blessing. And she did. She moved from California to Texas to care for an elderly lady that needed somebody to live with her. That kind of stuff made my parents just phenomenally happy. They believed in helping the elderly, the mothers that were had children with no you know, supportive father or things like that. They were very 
big about that. So her moving from California to Texas to care for this elderly lady obviously fell right in line with my parents' belief. I came September 1997 to visit her. So we were very close and she'd been gone three months. I asked to come see her. Uh, my parents said the only way they'd allow it is if I found somebody to fly with. I had never flown with anybody else, let alone by myself, and they wouldn't allow it. So part of the religion is is keeping women suppressed. You, you're not independent of a man. Everything is done with either your father or with an, another man present. You don't go traveling by yourself, okay? So I found somebody who was coming to that Christian camp retreat here in Texas and bought an airline ticket and flew with them. And then while I was here, I was here for about a week. And it was the first, the second time to be away from my mom, but the first time by myself. And I started, as I refer to it, kind of unthawing, you know, like just getting used to being on my own and, and away and, and not her down my ass every single minute of every single day. And the night before I was supposed to leave to go back, I just burst into tears and didn't want to go and had a conversation with um, some of the leaders. And in the end, they did a call to my parents with me on the line and let them know I was having a great time. And they thought it'd be good that my trip be extended. And there was part truth to that and part not, because I was actually really disturbed. It was shaking me up and I was reevaluating a lot of my life and having some deep conversations about what I had experienced in my parents' belief and punishment. And long story short, I um, started looking for, created a resume and started looking for a job here in Texas. And two weeks later, went to get my stuff and moved. Um, and so I was 20, but I was still in the same church. So though I scraped prison from my family, I still was in the overall prison of religion and um, a life not living anything that I wanted, just being told I was doing everything for God and God's will for my life. So, mm. Wow. It's really the only thing I can really say is wow. And just, <laughs> it, it, you know, it's hard to explain Tristan because in a society where we live, we think with so many freedoms, mm-hmm. it's hard to believe that, you know, in 20, you know, whatever year you want, whether now 2023, or way back in 1997, when I first left my parents, that these kinds of things were still going on in this modern day world. Um, but my parents were very religious and my dad wanted to be a preacher in the church. So that's one reason there was a lot of scrutiny on our conduct, because to be a leader in the church, you had to show that you could lead your family well and that they were orderly and orderly meant no sexual misconduct, you know, no getting in trouble with the law, all these things, you had to have a perfect home to qualify. Mm. So they took my situation of being raped very personal because it ruined their dreams, if you will. Because now my dad was not going to be allowed to be a preacher in the church. Wow. And so they put a lot of pressure on me and, and that pressure. And then my mom's, you know, words where you've disgraced me for life. Um, my beautiful firstborn daughter's no longer my prized possession. And so everything that she had at created my name misty all of it she put such meaning around she changed my name and they called me ethel um, because she thought ethel was a horrible name and so everything was intentionally to humiliate to um, discriminate dismiss disregard disrespect violate no value no love no affection no appreciation just and and, and truthfully keep putting that kind of pressure on you till you either falter and give up or you get stronger 
it, it was it was an intentional mind game mm. to wear you down and see if you had the ability and the strength to fight and and stay strong wow you are you are an example of what it means to conquer your life you are yeah you mentioned something earlier which is i was emotionally physically and spiritually beat down Mm-hmm. that's all we are is those three things. And they took every single one of those parts and beat you down. Mm-hmm. And yes. uh, I know your journey from getting out of that has been to build yourself back up in those areas. Um, and I, I would assume, right. From what you said, when you went to Salt Lake city, that, that was a really big turning point to kickstart the journey of conquering your life. So I'd love to, touch a little bit more into that was it like NLP training no um so I left the church March 2013 that summer I worked with my first counselor we had 17 sessions where she had me write out my story and also then read it to her when I came in and then we would discuss it so it was a two-step process Mm -hmm. um so that was the first time I told my complete story um then I worked with a coach um that I worked through some of what he called a life plan. And so we wrote down everything that happened in my childhood and where my mindset was in relation to that now and what I thought of myself. So it was the beginning of me kind of exploring working on me. Mm. But the Live Big was not an NLP program, but it is something um, the course is a lot like a Tony Robbins three-day immersive Mm. um, experience um, or... I don't know if you're familiar with anything like Landmark or there's a couple other here in Texas where you basically go away for the weekend, put your phone away, you're you're immersed from nine in the morning until nine o'clock at night, at least in all these sessions and group therapy, individual things, class, different speakers. Um, The one I did was called Live Big. Um, Mm -hmm. They now have a different program and it's called Legendary and it's a little bit different, but for all intents and purposes, it was, we really got deep. And in mm-hmm. that session is where I learned that my parents did the best that they had with their tools. Um, and in all likelihood, the amount of fear my mom had of my dad being inappropriate with us, molesting us or raping us or something. Now I realized that into the very thing actually happening when I was 17, because she was, she had all this fear and, in. After doing all the work I've done, I can guarantee you, Tristan, she had abuse in her childhood, whether it was from her dad mm-hmm. or it was from her brothers, something or other people, something happened because she was paranoid. She wouldn't let us be alone with my dad in the living room if she wasn't present or my other siblings weren't around. Like I couldn't be in the living room with my dad, so not a den where it was closed in and everything. It was an open living room, but I couldn't be in there without my dad. It was very clear instructions. If I leave the room or your siblings are not in the room and it's just you and daddy, you have to get up and leave. Mm. And so you're always, I spent so much of my life in what I refer to as hypervigilance, right? That parasympathetic state where you're always in fight or flight because I'm always trying to make sure I'm pleasing my mom. I'm not doing something bad for the church. Make sure that God's still, you know, happy with me in my life. Mm -hmm. So doing the live big experience was exploring the fact that one of the exercises he did with me was to realize my mom gave me a gift and I get to choose whether I accept that gift or reject that gift. I get to take that gift 
and unravel it and make it useful in my life or I can destroy it. And so though it might be strange to talk about all my childhood as being a gift, it was a gift for me to decide how and how did it affect me. And so I, I unknowingly, Tristan, learned a lot of mental mind-body connection techniques because of having to survive in that. Every day was sheer survival, okay? Mm-hmm. It wasn't how am I going to avoid getting beaten by my mom. I'm not saying that feeling wasn't there, but it's like, how am I going to get through today one more day in front of me? I have no choice about what happens, but I have a choice how I respond to it. I knew that stuff prior to ever doing any coaching and counseling mm-hmm. work because I knew that I had to be in control of my spirit and not let her destroy me. Um, a lot of my prayers were silent prayers, you know, after dinner and doing dishes, I would take the towels from washing dishes and go hang them out on the line outside to dry. Cause that was generally what we did. And I would catch a glimpse of a sunset and my eyes would lock in with that sunset and believe that God had my back and that he was still cared, even though it didn't feel like it. Mm-hmm. Right. So there are things from a young age that I tapped into that became a lifeline for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I, I worked through a lot of my fears through that live big coaching um, workshop. And then I did three months of mastermind through that program um, and worked more on myself on all the ways I didn't feel good enough and all the ways mm-hmm. I felt like a failure and all the ways that I had guilt and shame and regret from everything. And, and then how to live my life and share my story when my mom was threatening me that if I did, she would kiss, kill me physically. She would kill me. And did I really believe she would? No. But at the same time, I kind of did because she burned my brother's feet with matches three different times as a form of punishment. So how far would she take it to come after my life? I wasn't sure. Um, But I knew that I had to do this for me. And I knew that no matter what came of it next, that I couldn't keep hiding the family secrets. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That is... That is so deep. There's so many different routes that I can take with that. Um, there's something that's coming to mind here, and that is what you went through was an extreme. I mean, it was extreme out the wazoo of like, holy shit, this is not something that the typical person goes through and makes it through like you have. Yeah. But what I can tie together for being a young man nowadays and what I see in culture and in society is on a lower scale, Every single one of us has those similar problems. And um, my question for you is, if you were going to give advice for somebody who is, uh, they don't feel accepted, they have these mental limitations and problems from their past, maybe it's their parents, maybe a traumatic event happened, you know, from what you've learned, which you are 100% an example of that, what advice would you pass along to somebody like that? Well, I mean, for one, you've got to start by facing everything directly head on that you're afraid of. So I started doing all the things that I was told not to do, right? Don't hang with people who don't go to the church that you go to because they're not believers. Um, and when I say do the things I wasn't told, I was told not to, that wasn't like in an, okay, go be promiscuous now and just have sex with everybody. No, it wasn't that. It was all these things that I had been told were wrong or would not make God happy or not bring me blessings. Um, look at them, be more open to everything that I was afraid of. And, 
and explore it. And through that experience, I learned fear and excitement are the same energy to the brain. Mm-hmm. It's just how you decipher that message. That's why some people find it so fun and exciting to go bungee jumping or skydiving or any of these kinds of experiences because that's what they they take that message and that energy in their body and attribute it to actually a fun experience, something adventurous, something um, liberating, freedom, not closure, not risk. Yeah, there is risk with everything we do, but it's the mindset of how you look at it. And there's some things in life that we all could agree are more fun than others, right? Like if your hands get sweat, sweaty, thinking of how having sex, it's excitement to you. But that same feeling about standing then to jump off a cliff and bungee jump, you now turn as fear. Why? Why mm-hmm. is one exciting and one is, is fearful? And so learning to tap into that emotion and, and realize where are my beliefs coming from about this? Are they mine or are they someone else's? And being mm-hmm. able to question yourself, why do I believe that? And is it true? Do I undoubtedly know it's true? And why would I say it's true? How can I prove it's true? Mm-hmm. Um, and then just you start that process, it ravels into everything. I mean, it ravels into what you believe about the Bible. It, 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 you can't start that journey and do it effectively and it not permeate your complete life. So when people said to me, you changed, yeah, I changed because I, my whole world changed the whole way I looked at life, my whole philosophy of why do people say God is good when you're saved from a wreck, but if you weren't saved from a wreck, they still say God is good. How come it's only good if I'm spared pain and sorrow and suffering? Mm -hmm. And then looking at, you know, how the world talks about what is God's will for our life and how do we figure that out? How do we work through the, the verse in Deuteronomy that talks, he has a plan for us and it's a plan not to harm us and to hurt us when I've had years of harm and hurt. How do you reconcile these statements without it just feeling like a cliche statement of, you know, increased positivity that really has no foundation of truth mm-hmm. behind it? Reality is different. So being open to explore those things and not just take it and then look at, okay, am I really backed in a corner with no way out or do I have options and what are my options mm-hmm. and what am I willing to fight for me at all costs? Because I think that's really what it comes down to is, Tristan, what are you willing to fight for? What are you willing to stand up for no matter, you know, my all my family hates me. I'm not in contact with them. They mm-hmm. feel I've tore the family apart. I'm the one that could have put it back together. I'm the one that decided to, you know, everybody knows needs to know about this. Like there's a lot of animosity, a lot of mm-hmm. resentment towards me. Um, but it shaped me in the sense that it made me figure out really what was important. You know, my parents have removed me from the will big deal. I don't know if they have money or not have money. You grew up very poor. I would assume they don't have much. Even if they did, I don't want it. I want, I want a different life for myself. I don't want to hold on to people and maintain a connection by a bunch of rules. And that's what unfolded as, as I learned what a relationship is with God and with people And how do I want that affecting my life? What do I want to hold on to as truth? And what am I going to let somebody else believe and not feel I have to get caught up in also? This is just the beginning of your journey too, you know? And that's, that's why another reason why I'm so grateful to meet you where you are at now, because from what I understand, God puts his chosen people through the most for a reason. 
You know, I've, I I find your statement interesting because I've had some people ask me, why do you think God's had so much in your life, even, you know, what I've gone through in the last year? And that's the only thing I can say is, is when we make a declaration, I am, and this is who I'm going to be, I think God then steps up and goes, okay, I'm going to put this in your deck and let's see how you play the card. Mm-hmm. And we'll see if you're going to prove it. So, you know, from from a standpoint of my core values, I've always wanted to be um, courageous, generous, and loving. And I think God is giving me opportunities to prove, am I going to still be courageous? Am I going to still be generous no matter what happens? Am I going to still be loving? Mm-hmm. And I have a personal mission to encourage, support, and inspire others. He's giving me experiences. I refer to it sometimes online as modern day Job experience. He's giving me these things mm-hmm. for me to show that I, through my pain, can still be an encouragement. I can still support others and I can still inspire others because I do it first with myself. I can't do it with anybody else if I don't do it first with myself. I hear you. Some Something else that was coming to mind while you're saying that is I've heard it before and it makes complete sense to me is that God, I need strength. Okay, well, I'm going to give, I'm going to put you through things to make you stronger. God, I lack patience. I want more patience. Well, I'm going to give you things that's going to test your patience. You know, I want to be a a man that changes the world through masculine leadership. Okay, then you need to become that man. And that's not going to be fun. Yeah. You know, and that's just part of the journey. You want bigger muscles. You got to rip your muscles apart. You got to make them hurt. You got to get sore. Yeah. When you grow and become who you want to physically, you want to become who you want to mentally, you got to put yourself through the same mental battles or God will do it for you. You know, yeah. same thing spiritually. It just, it all makes sense to me. And I love hearing your story because it's a, it's a literally an exact testament to that. Yeah. And I would say, you know, realizing that what are the true things that you want to be identified with? Whatever we say we are, I am this, we will become it. So focusing on being who we say we want to be and doing the work. When I study different passages um, or remember things from my childhood and training religiously about God and faith, you know, we talk often about being blessed. And I think we have a misconception about what that is because God says you will have trials, you have tribulations, you have challenges, difficulties, issues. Why? So that you will gain what? Patience, character, and hope. It doesn't say so you'll gain blessings. Mm-hmm. It says that you'll gain patience, character, and hope, strength. And I think sometimes we we don't really realize that the true depth of character that God is creating in us is to be able to live in a world of duality. Mm-hmm. Good things and bad things, right things and wrong things, day, night. Sunny weather, stormy weather, like all of this is life. It's not mm-hmm. good or not, not one way is wrong, but learning how do we grow in that container duality. and become strong. I love, I love that duality. Yes. Uh, I've been really paying attention to the dualities nowadays. I'm very glad you brought that up because another one that I was thinking of when you were saying that is up and down. We have ups in life and downs in life. There's no such thing as in between. It is up and it is down. It is good. It is bad. It's hot. It's cold. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like a lot of, I saw this video and I thought it was fantastic. It said, 
this guy was asking, oh, I have ups and then extreme downs and then extreme ups and extreme downs. I just want to be right in the middle. And the guy he was asking was like, well, what happens to a heartbeat monitor when it's straight in the middle? It's flatline. You're yeah. dead. So any up that you guys have who are listening, you need to anticipate the down because it will happen. And then when you are down, you need to anticipate the up when it's coming. Um, Misty, I got to I gotta tell you, you, you have done so much in your life. And I wanted to touch more on that. And it's something that I know you're really passionate about and I really want to hear more of is black label culture. What is that? What does it mean to you? Well, having been raised in a cult in that environment for 37 years, um, black label, I feel, is how we paint people that don't look like us, act like us, have experiences like us that feel different. And we create a segregation um, and not, not really understanding the root of connection and community and the differences that we have. And so black label is all the ways that whether you're a woman in a church being allowed not to have a voice, like I wasn't, um, women weren't allowed to pray. You could go on and on just the way we were suppressed. That was black labeling us. Um, and even a society among ourselves, we do this. We label people by their status of how much money they make, how long they've been married, how many marriages they've had, how many kids they have, how much money they have in the bank. Like, we think all these things are what creates success. And if anybody's outside of our sphere of what we believe is normal or right, then we start making <clears throat> statements and accusations and criticizing and judging people and putting what I call a black label on them. Mm -hmm. um, and so black label culture is part of my brand where I want to speak to people who've been marginalized, rejected, abandoned, put to live under extreme shame, guilt, regret, not allowed to live in freedom. Um, and it has become their culture. They don't even know how to operate outside of it. And how do you create a true label that brings you intentionally to freedom? And it would make sense with your past and what you've went through, why you'd be super passionate to do that for others that feel lost in their own journey. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. I, I, I see it from people, whether they were raised religiously or not, even just as uh, someone in society, there's a lot of peer pressure to, you know, get a degree, earn this much money, get a prestigious job, get married, have kids. And why do people wake up in their 40s feeling their life is meaningless and doesn't have purpose? Because they've been doing it for the sake of others. Yep. and. and performing for value and connection. It's a deep ingrained people pleasing. It's how we, it's how we're wired. Mm -hmm. We are wired to connect with people who are just like us. And yet that puts us at a disadvantage because we are actually rejecting and ostracizing and, and abandoning other people who are worthy of the same things that we are because they have different beliefs. Mm -hmm. And so you know, even some, if you take a step back even further, Tristan, why do we come up with labels of gay and you know, all these things? We continue to segregate people. Mm -hmm. We're all human. Mm -hmm. We all have differences. Why do we have to label I'm a divorcee? I'm gay. I'm this. I'm that. Like our true identity of who we are in God 
isn't going to change no matter what. what. And so why do we continue to separate ourselves and keep building these walls and creating disconnection? It's no wonder people are depressed Mm -hmm. and sad and discouraged because at at a human level, we can't just be kind and generous and loving to people no matter their beliefs, no matter their choices. Like you said, unconditional and conditional love. It's right in, right on the money with what you're mm-hmm. talking about. Mm-hmm. It's a, uh, it's pretty crazy, you know, having the deep conversations with the younger guys nowadays. Like I will ask them those questions. Well, why are you doing that? Well, I don't know. Cause everybody else is okay. Well, why is everybody else doing it? I've learned that if you continue to ask why you will get to the root. And if the root doesn't line up with who you want to be, you need to get rid of it. That's my ideology on it. Like yesterday, a buddy of mine who I'm training here and the next gen, you know, how to be a sales rep, you know, he's always on his phone. He's just staring at his phone all day long. And I'm like, my dude, why are you doing that? Oh, well, I'm on Snapchat. What is Snapchat doing for you right now? Oh, I'm sending pictures. Are the pictures benefiting you? No. I was, I was like, I, I explained to him. I was like, the reason why you're doing what you're doing, which is a big problem in society, is it is triggering unnatural dopamine. The more unnatural dopamine you get, you get addicted to it. When we got to the root, I kept asking him questions. I was like, I want you to delete it. I want to see how you act if you delete Snapchat. He wouldn't delete it. For 30 minutes, he was like withdrawing from his phone. And what I realized is there's these vices that go past drugs nowadays. It's, it's the phones. It's the attention. It's, uh, I don't know, social media. It, it could be sugar. It could be anything. There's so many devices out there that just people get addicted to. And they tie their identity into their habits and what they're addicted to. And what I've realized, cause I've been addicted to the same things, being a younger guy, getting grown up into this generation is that I found me and who God wanted me to be when I broke those habits. And really it allowed me to be more at one with who God wants me to become. And it's one of the best feelings I've ever had. Yeah. I, I you know, I feel we've, we've lost what true connection and relationships are and social media can be a great tool. I love being able to like, you know, see you and Brianna's life. There's a lot of things mm-hmm. I wouldn't have if I didn't have social media, but at the same time, if you even just take a step back in one of my finance courses, I teach that we look at where we spend our time. And even if you just want to say you're being paid minimum wage or a small amount per an hour, let's say 10 bucks, how many, how many hours a day do you spend on social media? I have a, a timer on my phone that tracks how much time I spend on social media. And it's easy to spend an hour to an hour and a half to two hours throughout my day. Easy, mm-hmm. easy. And when I look at that, let's just say I'm making $10 an hour that I could at a job. If I do two hours a day, that's 20 bucks a day. If I do it seven days a week, that is $140. You do that 52 weeks a year, like even on a small layout, I can't do the math in my head on that, but um, that's 7,280 bucks. Wow. 
guys, how it's much would that help you out? 7280 bucks a year worth two hours a day of social media. If I told you, Tristan, I am going to pay you $7,280 if you don't spend any time on social media between now and the end, two hours, you can take those two hours and you're going to either read books, you're going to write a book, you're going to prepare um, a speech, you're going to go do a philanthropy project, you're going to learn a new hobby, you're going to build a business, you're going to just work overtime. Mm-hmm. You're going to, whatever benefit of those two hours you did, plus you would make that time, the money, that you would make like it's mm. even on a small level that's not even what most people make per hour most people make more than ten dollars an hour mm. so i don't care i don't care where you start even if you start at just the basic you're like well it's my free time if you were to look at you say you don't have enough time to do what it is you want okay two hours a day for 365 days a year is 730 hours a lot What's of days. That's a lot of days. I mean, like, what what would you do with that time? And I'm not saying, I'm not trying to say here, you know, get rid of your social media, but mm-hmm. most people don't live intentionally. They do not have a clear understanding. What do I want for my life? I, I, I get Simon Sinek and his why start with why. I start with what. If you don't know what you want, you'll never figure mm-hmm. out why you want it. You got to know what it is you want. Do you want Snapchat? Do you want social media? Do you want money? Do you want things? Do you want a degree? What is it you want? Mm-hmm. You want knowledge? And then when you know what it is you want, it's easier to make those choices. For him, he can't get rid of Snapchat because he doesn't know what he is he really wants. Boom. So right then and there, I'm glad that you brought that up because as we were having that conversation, I did that exact thing. Uh, what's his name? Uh, the lion's not sheep guy. Sean Whalen, he will sit down in front of you and stare at you into your soul and he will say, what do you want? And most people be like, oh, I don't know. And he'll get louder. What do you want? And he'll yeah. keep getting louder and you're like, oh my God, I want this. I want this. I want this. I want this. And I did that to him as he's contemplating. I'm like, what do you want, dude? I want this. I want this. Well, what do you really want? Okay. Well, I want this. I want success. I want a good body. I uh, want a, I want a wife. I want this. I want this. I want that. And I was like, is what you are doing on that phone on Snapchat benefiting you and helping you get to what you want? And he said, no. He said, no. Then he deleted it. Logical sense, guys. What do you want? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we have to be ruthless at it, Tristan. We have to be mm-hmm. ruthless at pursuing what we want. Because if not, we will drift and we will go wherever the tide takes us. We will follow people. We will jump on the latest craze, you know, whether that's chat GPT and AI stuff or whether that's, you know, cross country uh, sporting event or something, you ride your bike or whatever, go hiking. Like we, we all get an option every day to choose. And when we know exactly what we want, Mm-hmm. We will take effort and action towards it. It's easy to sabotage and easy to just piss away time if you don't have clarity on what it is you want. Mm-hmm. With how I grew up, you know, I knew I wanted to be somebody that people looked up to. I wanted to be accepted as somebody that change, helped change somebody's life. And I didn't know what that looked like. I don't know why I felt that way. I know now that it was God talking to me saying, this is what I want you to do. But I was too young and dumb to 
<laughs> take it into consideration. Um, but the reason why I say that, guys, is that I am young. Misty sees it. You know who she's became. She We can agree on many different things. But what I'm getting at here is that like, I'm figuring it out by figuring out what I want and only doing the things that align with what I want. And if I can do it, if Misty can do it with all the shit she's been through, which most people wouldn't have made it. I mean, I, I don't want to get super deep, but I mean, like, has there been times that you questioned living? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, like, I've never, I've never been at a place where I wanted to kill myself. Um, but I have been more than once in my life. And I wouldn't say like, it's been 10 times. I probably could count on one hand, how many times mm-hmm. it has come to be really difficult seasons um, where you're questioning God, you're questioning your purpose, mm-hmm. your the meaning, the path, is it even worth it? Um, there's an element I'm going through some of that right now. I'm mm-hmm. facing um, a health battle with Lyme disease and mold toxicity illness. And there are days I can hardly function. And it makes you feel like, what is all this for? Why am I going through this more shit? Why am I going mm-hmm. through more shit? What's the, what's the benefit of this? Um, it can feel that the meaning and purpose, you know, people say God will turn and use everything for your good. And I believe that that is true, but it doesn't mean the experience is good mm-hmm. while we're in it. It's going to be painful. It's going to be difficult. The end result is going to work something in my good, but that doesn't mean it, it's, it's easy. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that we always are accepting of it or that we're always unconditionally loving to ourselves, that we're nourishing. We spend more time focusing on how to just love ourselves through the challenges, through the mental and emotional, physical, spiritual battles. I think that's where we grow as a person. Absolutely. We put more shame on ourselves, guilt on ourselves and say, well, I should be here. I should be experiencing this or I shouldn't have made that bad decision. It continues to keep us in a cycle of judgment. If this episode resonated with you, or if you know somebody who needs to hear it, don't keep it to yourself. Share it far and wide to anyone who crosses your mind. Send them a text message, an email, a DM on social media. Take a screenshot if you have to, and share it to your stories on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Snapchat. I also want to express my gratitude for the incredible support and the five-star reviews on iTunes and Spotify. Your reviews help the show reach new audiences who might have never stumbled upon it before. By listening, they have the opportunity to open their minds and potentially change their lives. So please keep those reviews coming in and let's continue to make a huge impact together. Till next time, everybody, this is Tristan Mather signing off. And remember, if you want to make the world a better place, you must first look at yourself and make that change. Conquer your life.